if God can get her from Serbia to Auburn to get her attention, what won't he do for any of us in this room who earnestly seek after the heart of God? That story is the ultimate reminder that more is happening in a space like this than just a large group of people singing songs and listening to a speaker. God is moving. And I love the little clip of her serving with ACC Kids. I'm so grateful that there are volunteers who took time out of their Easter Sunday. We usually have four or five gatherings on an Easter. We got one this year. So the people serving our kids right now, they don't get to attend an Easter Sunday gathering. But can we let them hear how glad we are that they're serving faithfully? Amazing. parking team as well. I know it was a little crazy getting in and, and we did not know that all of you were going to come. We thought a lot of you would come, not 6,000. So um, it, it, if you're in a spot where you can't see well, we just hope that this environment of so many people gathered together on Resurrection Sunday is one that encourages your spirit. And I'm going to preach for a few minutes on the resurrection of Jesus. Shocker. Um, and, but I want to do it under the umbrella of this simple title that we say very often at ACC, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That is the headline of Resurrection Sunday. Jesus' victory over the grave is the foundational moment for not just believers, but for humanity in general. So when we say this is the headline, it's not just the headline of a holiday. It's the headline of humanity. Literally restarted time based on this event and the subsequent movement that went out from the resurrection of Jesus. But so I'm clear from the beginning of this sermon, our agenda today, especially if you're new, we want to make this known. If you're here from out of town or you haven't been to church in a while, our agenda today is not just that you would come to a church service and believe that Jesus rose from the dead and agree with it like a fact check. Our hope today is that Jesus wins being the headline of the human story would become the headline of your story. That you would legitimately have an encounter with God where you see clearly Jesus not only won over the grave, but like Eva said, he wins over my life. You got a lot of options that you could spend your life on, but when you compare what Jesus offers you based on his life, death, burial, and resurrection to anything else this world has to offer, the only logical and spiritual conclusion is this, Jesus wins. And here's what's sad about that. There is no way, no matter how hard I try to communicate that reality, there is no way that can happen to you or to me unless God gets involved. If the Holy Spirit doesn't open your heart, your mind, and your eyes to see Jesus as better than any other option, there's no amount of shouting or joke telling or old hymns or new songs that we could put together in an arena to set you up for a meeting with God. It has to be God. So I just wanted to take a breath before I give my absolute best effort to articulate the gospel message of Jesus. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to cover every word. Heavenly Father, I can't do this in my strength. I ask you from heaven right now, where churches are gathered all over the world celebrating Jesus, would you look down on Neville Arena and empower your servant to say every word that you've called him to say, nothing more and nothing less. God, would you give me wisdom and insight 
into things that I wouldn't know if it wasn't for your spirit? God, would you cause people who came here not really caring about the resurrection of Jesus, but just checking the box that they attended church on Easter, would you move in their life? Would you move in marriages? Would you move in families? I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So all over the world today, people are gathered to celebrate this one event. Churches are more full today than they are on any other day of the year. And part of that is beautiful. It's right that the church would celebrate and have a party in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus like no other party. But the tragedy that I feel year after year on Easter Sunday is that so many people will attend church gatherings that talk about the resurrection of Jesus, yet for most Bible-believing Christians, resurrection remains more of a fleeting, distant, and wishful hope than a current reality that they live in every day. It's more like we bring up resurrection on Easter, at funerals where we need to feel like we have some sort of security because we don't really know how to handle that, or when we come to grips with our own mortality and we go, okay, Jesus conquered the grave and I prayed the prayer and I did my thing and I went to church. But if we got really honest, resurrection is so much more of a distant, wishful reality than it is a current hope that we're living and breathing in every day of our lives. And I believe this was the tension that Jesus felt when he went to raise Lazarus from the dead. We're not going to read this today, but John chapter 11, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, one of Jesus' best friends dies during a time period where Jesus is healing everybody he comes into contact with. But when Jesus heard that his friend Lazarus was sick, Scripture says he stayed where he was a few more days. And he actually explained to his disciples, I'm doing this so that the glory of God can be displayed. So Lazarus dies, has been dead for days, and Jesus shows up to comfort the family. And when Lazarus' sister Martha sees Jesus, she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus says this. This is good news today. Your brother will rise again. And what does she say? What so many of us would have said. She says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And you can almost feel her tone of, I know you're going to make all things new and the resurrection is a theological construct that will come to pass. It will happen. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus, in that moment, says the famous line, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, don't you dare push off your hope for your brother's eternity to some future reality that you're, if you got honest, you're a little unsure about and you're a little bit like, I don't know how accurate this is, but whatever gives me hope. No, Jesus goes, because I'm here, resurrection is here. And I believe that same collision is going to happen in this space and in every space joining us today. And that's this. Resurrection is not a future reality that we set our hope in. It is a current reality available for the believer today. Right here, right now, I am the resurrection and the life. And I am convinced that our lives would look totally different if we actually believe this. So you might be like, Miles, what, what makes you make the bold statement that most Christians don't really come to grips with that? Look at our lives. Our lives are built on now. Built on comfort. Built on everything that we can do to make this life as good as it can possibly go. And yeah, we got hope for heaven. But if you look at the way you and I and so many of us live our daily lives, it's pretty clear that what we say we believe on paper and what we're celebrating today is a distant, wishful hope more than it is a current reality that we are holding on to every step of our lives. 
Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, says that what we believe about the future completely controls how we experience the present. Completely. Nothing impacts your present reality more than what you believe about the future. And that's especially true when we talk about resurrection. And so my simple prayer for Easter at ACC is this. God, make it real. Make it real. Make it tangible. Make your presence as real as our next breath, as real as the person next to you right now. Not something that we check the box in, get our family photo, and move on with our lives, but a reality called resurrection that collides with our lives and transforms and changes everything about the way we live. That's what I'm dreaming about today. And the only way that can happen is if we look to the truth of God's word. So a few years ago, Kind of playfully, I asked people to hold their Bibles in the air and single people to keep them up in order to set up Christians on dates. Christian mingle has nothing on the Bible drill. And so I did that not knowing that it was going to cause a movement of people showing up, Bibles in hand on Sunday mornings in some of the most unlikely spaces. And so in what could be the largest Bible drill we have ever had as a church, I want to invite you, if you brought your Bible at all of our locations... If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up high, hold it up. I see you up there. It's actually a really good seat up there. You guys good? Hold it up. Hey, the last two years have been really hard for a lot of people, hard on our world, hard on our country. Look around right now. Feel that. God's still moving. He's still moving. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at the most explicit teaching on resurrection in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth had issues. You think your church has issues, you should read First and Second Corinthians. Man, it's like chapter, oh, that was happening? Wow, that was, whoa. And so what Paul's doing, especially in First Corinthians, is he's just jumping from issue to issue, explaining this is a gospel view of the, re, or of the tension and the division that you're feeling related to a bunch of different topics. And when he gets to 1 Corinthians 15, he deals with resurrection. This is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I used to tell people in high school, uh, I, I played high school basketball, don't know if you knew that, but I feel like I had to mention it since we're at Neville Arena. And I, I was above average and uh, I, wore, I, I wore number 15 and I would tell people, that I wore number 15 for 1 Corinthians chapter 15. wasn't even true, but it sounds spiritual. And, um, but actually, my, my senior year, I tried to change my number. I went to my coach, and I was like, hey, I've been wearing 15 for a couple of years, but I, I want to switch to number one. And one of my coaches who played in the NBA, he looked at me and laughed, and he was like, Miles, you're not good enough to wear number one, bro. Stay 15. So I stayed 15. I did. He has a right to say that. I wish I could read this whole chapter. It's 58 verses. Um, we're not going to do that. I'm going to invite you to study it fully, but we are going to cover an overhead view of this entire chapter in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Go back to the beginning. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. That word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. It simply means proclamation of good news. And Paul goes, I want to take you back to the beginning to the most fundamental, essential truths that you got to know. Here's what you got to know. If I could sum it up in one sentence, here's what you got to know. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That means it was according to the plan of God. The scriptures at this point, Paul's talking about Old Testament, things that are already written. And what Paul is saying is that the good news that we are celebrating as Christians is this. Jesus died to save us from sin, and this is not something that a man came up with during his 33-year, 34-year life. This is something that God has planned and ordained from the beginning of time. Why? Because humanity by nature is evil. Why do we need someone to die for sin? And some of you, you... If you got really honest about questions that you're wondering in a space like this, it's like, what is the big deal with Jesus being tortured and dying and then rumors that he rose from the dead? And what does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. Our God is a holy God. No sin in him at all. But humanity's rebellion mandates a separation and a punishment from a God who is holy. And that's not because we do bad things. That's because we're born evil. And you do not need a Bible to believe that. Just watch the news. Look at what's happening in Ukraine. Look at what's happening in our own country. Watch the story of divorce destroy a family unit. Watch cancer obliterate someone's health. Everything about the human condition was tainted by the presence of sin. And even as you hear that, you're like, yeah, but there's so much beauty and there's so much kindness and there's so much grace and there's, there's so much goodness. And I would agree with you. That's the imagio Dei, image of God implanted on the inside of humanity and God's common grace overall. But at the end of the day, God's solution for the problem of evil and the problem of sin is his own son, Christ meaning anointed one, to be offered up as a sacrifice for sins where Isaiah chapter 53 says, the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That word iniquity doesn't even mean sin. It means inclined. It means every inclination of the human heart that separated from the heart of God was pressed down. The perfect son of God who did no wrong, who loved others, who miraculously healed, who taught graciously, and who started a revolution of a new way, never doing one evil, was hung on a Roman cross for six hours to bleed and die. And the agony of the cross was not even the nails or the lashings or the embarrassment. The true agony of the cross was the wrath of God poured out for you and for me. Why did Jesus have to take that? Because by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' body gets wounded, so your body never has to. Oh, your body will decay and die if Jesus does not return before that point, and we're going to talk about that in this sermon. But at the end of the day, 
The cross of Jesus is the promise to sinful humanity that he took our place so we get to take his. What's his place? Son of God. The cross, this is good news. If you haven't been in church in a long time, I do not care how far you had to come to get here or how long you have not been in church. The message is the same. Because of the blood of Jesus, God is not mad at you right now. All of the wrath of God poured out on the cross. So what do you and I inherit by grace through faith? The position of Jesus in the sight of God. And this is how great God is. This was God's plan all along. You weren't pulling God's arm. You weren't shouting him down in heaven. You weren't begging him to do this. You weren't even around when he initiated this for you. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And when you know that type of grace, it wrecks you and it changes you forever. Then what does it say? It says he was buried. Don't skip the burial. We always jump from Friday to Sunday and skip the burial. The fact that Jesus was buried means he wasn't just asleep, fully dead. Just like when you come to faith in Jesus, the old you is fully gone and the new you comes alive. But he doesn't, watch what Paul does. This is, why, this is why I want to preach on this passage. He doesn't spend a ton of time on the cross or the burial. He spends a ton of time on the resurrection. He goes, then he rose. He appeared to Cephas, to the 12, to the apostles. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. And then he appeared to James. And then lastly to me, as to one abnormally born. Paul wants you to know, I didn't deserve to have the resurrected Christ make an appearance for me. But he did it for me anyway, and that's why I'm proclaiming him to you. Paul seems to be aiming 1 Corinthians 15 at resurrection. Yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. But please know this. He was raised from the dead. Why does he do that? Because there were two questions that had taken root in the Corinthian church that Paul's going to deal with explicitly. One of them is, can dead people even rise? Some of you have wondered that. There's, there's no such thing as resurrection. This is what Christians were saying in the church at Corinth. We love Jesus. We love his teachings. He was perfect, and obviously he was punished. But people don't rise from the dead, and Paul wants to address that question with an emphatic, no, 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 that's an essential. We're going to talk about that in a second. And then the second question was, okay, if they do rise, what kind of body do they rise in? And we're going to look at Paul's two answers to those questions. If you're over in verse 8, skip over to verse 16 and listen to this. Paul says this. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that's, that's language for death, in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says, if the dead are not raised, everyone who has died has no hope. Christians of all people are to be pitied. You might be here today and be like, listen, I'm into the whole Christian, like helping other people, feeding the hungry and doing nice things for people. Christians take care of orphans and all that. But this whole Jesus is raised from the dead thing is kind of the, the deal breaker for me. Paul goes, if all Christians have are a bunch of good works in a meaningless universe, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without resurrection, we got nothing. And Paul says, good news, Christ has been raised. It is an essential for a believer in Jesus to 100% put their hope and trust in the risen Christ, that he really did rise from the dead. But now, Paul, he's going to make it more literal. The question comes up. If you go down to verse 35, read this. He said, someone will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. 
This is where when you're reading your Bible honestly, you can kind of laugh to yourself because Paul's going, some of you are asking, like, what kind of body will you have when you rise from the dead? What a foolish question. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of want to hear the answer to that. Um, I'm like, I'm one of the foolish Corinthians who's like, can we hear a little more about what, what is our body going to be like? What was Jesus' body like? He says, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Paul goes, you're wondering what your body's going to be like when you rise from the dead? What happens when you plant a seed in the ground? It dies, and life springs forth. Same thing for human beings. I don't know about you, but that just, that just blows my mind. Paul is saying, when you die... You die as a Christian, this is if you're in Christ, your body goes into the ground, your spirit goes to be with Jesus, that's why Paul says it's better by far to be taken, but when Jesus returns, your body and your spirit are reunited, you come back and live forever in a physical resurrected form of the body that you're living in right now. He said, but just like the seed is different than what grows from there, that's like your body going into the ground or being cremated or however that moment comes for you. But Paul is saying, this is a literal thing that's going to happen to you. Nothing drives me more crazy than being at funerals where people start talking about all these things that are not as good as what the Bible teaches. Start talking about heaven gaining a new angel. Start talking about all, and I, listen, angels are awesome, but we're not angels. We're humans. And scripture says it's awesome to be a human being made in the image of God. If your hope is in Jesus, death is not the end. Paul goes on to say the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. This is good news if you've ever been in a hospital room with someone as their body withers away. This is good news. If you've ever been to a funeral and missed that person who's no longer there, more than words can say. And I realize on a holiday like today, those memories just come up to all of those who are not with us right now. I want you to know the scriptures don't give you a fleeting, wishful hope that one day you might see them again because of what Jesus has done. He is the one our faith and trust is. He is ending death, the last enemy. So in every hospital room that I've been in praying over someone, as, and it has happened more than you realize, I feel this pit in my stomach as I look at their physical body, especially people who were once so vibrant and fully alive. And there's a part of me in that moment that goes, it is not supposed to be like this. This is not what God designed. God designed humanity to live. And Jesus' resurrection is the physical, visible reminder that if you die in Christ, what you look like when you take your last breath is not what you're looking like for all of eternity. We're going to have bodies. We're going to have relationships. We're going to have jobs. We're going to have homes. We're going to live. It's, yes, we're going to sing songs, and yes, we're going to celebrate God. That's going to be awesome. But it's not an eternal church service where angels play harps on clouds. We're going to live forever and ever I'm sorry if it's weird to freak out about this, but I think it's more normal to freak out about this and be excited about giving up in this life what you cannot keep to gain forever what you cannot lose. This is not Christian hysteria. This is not us running to something because we have to have our hope somewhere at funerals. This is real. This really happened. 
And it's real for you and it's real for me today. Paul finishes 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Listen to this. He says, listen, I'll tell you a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, come on, you can cheer for that. Jesus wins, come on. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul's pointing to this last moment. Spirit and body reunited forever at the return of Christ. And he says death is swallowed up in victory and we get to live forever. If you're here today and watching people worship on a stage or looking around this room and wondering why people are so passionate about Jesus, we actually believe everything I just read. It says in the twinkling of an eye, we actually believe that in a moment we will be changed. And our hope is in heaven. And my prayer in a moment like this is that you're catching a vision for if, what if my life was actually created for more than I'm living for right now. This is the type of hope Jesus brings. And this is why worshipers have arisen from all around to say yes to him. This is why 65 people are getting baptized next Sunday. And while Jesus will continue to win. Does he win your life? Does he win your story? I would love to end the message with a prayer right there and go, Jesus defeated death. If you want to agree with that and believe that, we'll pray a prayer and move on. And to be honest, that's how I grew up hearing the end of Easter sermons. Jesus did it all. Pray a prayer and say yes and know that you're going to heaven forever. But I can't do that today. Because at the beginning and end of 1 Corinthians 15, there is a warning hidden in the passage about everything Jesus has finished for us. I noticed at the end how it said, so that you know that your labor is not in vain. And that normally wouldn't catch my attention. But this year, I've been obsessed with reading things that start and finish the same way. Narratives that have like a thought at the beginning and a thought at the end. They're called chiasms, and you wouldn't believe it, but 1 Corinthians 15, chiasm, crazy. It is, it's a crazy chiasm because it goes in all kinds of different directions, and you can Google that one and look that one up. I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but when I got to the end, I was like, didn't you say at the beginning so that our belief is not in vain, and, and at the end you said so that our work for God is not in vain? Let me read to you the beginning again because we, we skipped over this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. I'm going to read that again. By this gospel, this good news, this proclamation of what Jesus has done, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Everyone in Neville Arena, look up here and do not miss this. Everyone watching online, I want to say this as clearly as I can. There is a type 
of belief in the resurrection of Jesus that is vanity. It's not real. Paul says it's possible to believe Jesus rose from the dead and it be in vain. And his qualifier is holding on to the word that was preached to you. So I got to be careful here. I'm not saying that you earn God saving you by holding on to what was taught to you good enough or strong enough. No. I'm saying those whom God saves demonstrate in real time that salvation by holding on to the teaching of their rabbi who leads them every step of the way. There is a belief in Jesus that is in vain, and it is one that just intellectually agrees that you think it happened but doesn't surrender your life. If you're wondering today, how do I know how much I believe in the resurrection? Like, who measures this stuff and goes, well, did you really believe it? Did you really mean it? If you want to know how much do I believe in resurrection, here's, here's the question you need to ask yourself. How surrendered is your life? How surrendered are you to what's taught in the scriptures to who Jesus is? And this is not me telling you, you, you hey, hold on, hold on. There's got to be some, some effort and some earning involved here. No, Jesus did it all. But true faith that Jesus did it all results in a lifestyle that actually applies the scriptures and gets serious about your faith. ACC was started in the Bible Belt because we are totally and completely opposed to half-hearted cultural Christianity. That is what this church has been built on, and that honestly is the passion that sets me on fire in the morning other than raising my girls and loving my wife and loving Jesus. It is I'm tired of living in an area where it's safe to just check the box that you believe something and never have your lifestyle transformed. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the invitation is to a risen life. And I'm not, I'm not telling you this because I want to be hard on you on Easter Sunday. I'm telling you this because I love you even if I haven't met you and I have prayed for you earnestly. Famous preacher Charles Spurgeon encouraged pastors on Easter Sunday to preach and make sure that should anyone go to hell, that they have to jump over a pile of dead bodies to get there. That's the reality I'm preaching into because I can tell you all day Jesus did it all. New life, going to heaven forever, resurrected bodies. But that's half the truth. If you do not surrender your life, to the Jesus I am preaching right now. There is no wrath of God on Jesus for your sin. You remain separated. And it's not that you're going to cease to exist forever. You will exist forever in eternal separation from God. And not watch this. Not because God's going to be up in heaven going, hey, you didn't get serious enough at Neville Arena. You should have you been more serious about the Jesus stuff. Uh-uh. It's going to be you willfully in ungrateful unbelief saying, thanks, Jesus, but I've got a better way. You are the one who makes that choice, and that choice is present here today. And because I want you to get this, I'm just, I'm just putting it in front of you. Jesus wins, and he's the only one with hope for eternal life, and it is a real hope. Has he made it real for you? We always say at ACC that we want to invite the masses to be a part of what we call the remnant. We're tired of there being a small group of people in church who are serious about Jesus while the crowds check the box. We want deep discipleship. We want to go deep in the word of God. 
and we believe this is how life is best lived. You're invited to be a part of it. Even if you don't live in Auburn, you're invited to be a part of it, but it's going to look different. I realize that I just went super convicting on Easter Sunday. So come up for air. Look at somebody next to you. Tell them it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Stay with me. I want to ask you two questions. And then you can go eat ham. <laughs> Number one, why do we do that? I don't know how it became a thing. I think we did it. I think we did it to just remind the Jews. Like, hey, he did rise, you know. It's like the power of the law is done away with. We will eat ham. We love the people of God. Number one, do you, two questions, how do I know if I'm surrendered? Do you enjoy a real relationship with God? Do you enjoy a real relationship with God? And that, in, that word enjoy is intentional. We've asked for too long in the church, do you have a relationship with God? No, 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 better question. Do you enjoy one? Because God has wired humanity to exist hinging on two realities, the glory of God and the satisfaction of man. You were created to glorify God, but you are, God is most glorified in you, this is John Piper, not me, when you are most satisfied in him. Did you know that your best life is a life not lived for you? And that you find the full fulfillment of what it means to be a human being when your life is about Jesus. And God has made it so. The way you and I glorify Jesus the most is by delighting in God the most. Do you enjoy a real, vibrant relationship with God? I want to give you an illustration to just explain what I feel from interacting with so many Christians. My wife had our third daughter about a month ago. Her name's Mercy Jane. So I'm going to show you a picture of my three girls. This is Aniston, Elliot, and Mercy Jane. Yep, five, three, and one month. And um, man, I just, I love being a girl dad. I'm here for it. Makeup, like the whole deal. And I, I realize gender specific things are controversial now, so cancel me. Um, but uh, <laughs> Jesus canceled death. Well, um, sorry, I just wanted to rescue myself from that moment. Um, but anyway, my girls, focus, Miles. My girls, Aniston, Elliot, and Mercy Jane. I'm a girl dad to the core. I, I absolutely. Love doing life with the three of them. But I thought about, I thought about this this week, and this is, this is totally theoretical. But if something happened where my three daughters were separated from me and in danger, think like Liam Neeson, taken, okay? And even though I have nothing in common with a character like that, just let your imagination, let your imagination go there, okay? My girls are separated from me. And, and, and I do some type of plan. I obviously call my friends in my community group to help me. And, um, and, and we execute a plan to rescue my daughters and get them back. When they come back to my house and they know that they are only in my house because I did something to rescue them. What if, just go there in your mind. What if they spent the rest of their lives never saying a word to me? But all they did, look up here. But all they did was talk to each other about what I did to save them. That's how most Christians relate to God. We spend our lives rehearsing and regurgitating what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And trust me, it's awesome. But do you know why he did it? To bring you back to your heavenly father. It's not just so we can come together and check the boxes of all the doctrines we believe from the scriptures. 
It's so we can step into a relationship with the God of the universe. Some of you, all you've ever done is talked about what God did to save you, but you've never really gone there with God to enjoy a relationship with him. You know, the night before Jesus died, this is what Jesus said eternal life is. You'll be, spit on the mic, you'll be like blown away by this. It says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For Jesus, eternal life is not heaven after you die or after I come back and your spirit and body are reignited. No, no, no. He goes, eternal life, here it is, that they would know you, the one true God. What did Jesus accomplish by dying and rising again? You get to enter into an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. You get to talk to him, and he talks to you. How does he talk to you? Through his word. How do you talk to him? Through prayer. Your whole life becomes an enjoyment of the relationship that you will live in forever and ever alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. You get to wake up like I do in the morning and name out, out loud, all the things that you have no control over and still have peace. That's what I've been doing lately. God, here's what I want control over. Here's what I don't have control over. And this is me saying out loud that it's better that you got it. That's enjoyment of God. It's enjoyment of God to sing. It's enjoyment of God to be on a beach and go, you're amazing. It's enjoyment of God to raise a family. It's enjoyment of God to look into the eyes of your grandkids. It's enjoyment of God to live this life as he created it. So if you want to know, are you surrendered to Jesus? The question is not, have I agreed to all the correct beliefs? It's, do you know God? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here's what Jesus did for you. He made access to God possible by his blood so you can enjoy a real relationship with God. And I just want to encourage you. I promise I'm done. I promise I'm done. Start where you are. If you're further away in your faith than you want to be, this is a great space to start. If you're like, I don't even have a Bible, we have a Bible for you on your way out today that will literally, like with language, I mean, like we can't give everybody a Bible here. We can order you one. But, but if you're here and you're like, I don't have one that I can even understand as I read it, we will give you a Jesus Bible as you leave today. We want to help you on this journey, but it's not about calling yourself a Christian or being afraid of hell forever. It's about enjoying a relationship with your heavenly father who sent Jesus to buy you back from death and hell in the grave. Do you enjoy a relationship with God? Number two. Are you truly surrendered to Jesus? Are you truly surrendered? And, and that word truly is the key word of this one. True surrender is a space where you couldn't leave Jesus even if you wanted to. In John chapter 6, Jesus has a huge following because he was doing miracles and giving away free food. He says some controversial things to kind of break up the crowd, mess with people. I love that Jesus created a movement that changed the world by trying to weed out people who weren't serious from the crowd. Amazing. But in John 6, all these disciples are leaving, thousands of them. Think about in this room right now, if I said something so offensive, and like from here over, all of y'all walked out mid-sermon. Please don't do that. All y'all are feeling really good. This is the remnant over here. I love it. It's just because I'm sitting over there. Um... <laughs> And then Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, are you, are you going to leave too? And Simon Peter, with one of the most brilliant responses in all of the gospel accounts, looks at the Savior of the world and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone 
have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are God's Messiah, the anointed one. We don't understand it. We don't get it, but we're staying. Here's Peter's logic. Do not miss this. Look up here. His logic is, where else am I going to go? Only you have eternal life. My final question for you before we sing. If you don't surrender your life to Jesus, where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go at a funeral? That's the one that gets me. I could stand up here all day and explain to you how Jesus wins. He's better than any other option you have for your life. The world offers temporal satisfaction. Jesus is the bread of life. He offers real satisfaction. The world offers conditional love and gives you like love on the basis of the value that you earn. Jesus gives unconditional love. The world offers no peace and anxiety. Jesus offers surpassing peace. The world offers meaninglessness and no purpose. Jesus offers supernatural purpose. I mean, Jesus compared to the world, it's not even a question. Jesus wins. But then when you get to Resurrection Sunday, it becomes ridiculous. And you go, okay, it's not just those things against Jesus. No one else has anything to say against death and the grave. So if you leave here today and decide to live for any other name, just make sure you've thought through this question. Every one of us are living in a broken world in expiring bodies that will come to an end. The only one who gives you hope and gives me hope for eternal life is the one who wants to be your father and friend. How could you leave here and do anything other than say yes to him? So that's what we're gonna do together in this room. That's what we're gonna do at all of our locations. Would everybody stand up and we'll make this as least distracting as we can, knowing that the band and the choir gotta make their way up here. But let's stand up all over this space. I wanna give us an opportunity from the center of our city to put a banner over this day. Jesus wins. And some of you will do that for the first time. And some of you will do it for the thousandth time. I want you to enjoy it. So that was uh, 43 minutes of everything I got. That's the best sermon I can give you on Easter. That's year a year of preparing countless hours of crying and praying and all of it at best can make you rethink some things but right now I believe that it's not me and my strength that's going to change anyone if the Holy Spirit is causing you right now to see Jesus as better than any other option do not wait another moment to declare it I know some of you came in here nervous to even sing songs. And after I pray, we're going to sing. I want to ask that maybe even with your family around, that you lighten up a little bit and you actually take the opportunity celebrating the resurrection of your Savior to respond in a way that's fitting for a resurrected King. I trust the Holy Spirit to do that. Would you bow your head? Heavenly Father, I thank you in this room and at all of our locations that your Spirit is moving. I pray that your presence would be so unmistakable in this space, that we would see you, that we would taste you, that we would feel you, that God, even though you're not in the room physically, spiritually speaking, God, lift our eyes and remind us that this is real. God, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice in any space that has hesitated to say yes to you, give them the courage to say yes right now. You just pray this simple prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. I don't wanna waste my life on anything less. 
Father, I thank you in these moments that we have a hope. It's a living hope. In Jesus' name, would you lift the head of the dejected and the depressed? Would you encourage those who are ready to give up? Would you strengthen those who are tired? God, as we think about the cross and the empty tomb today, would you allow resurrection power to be breathed out in Neville Arena and all across this state, all across this country, and all across this world, that Jesus wins. We celebrate you now. We lift up praise to your name, in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Come on, let's celebrate on Easter Sunday. Come on.